my name is Dale Johnson. It's so good to be here. Um, I'm in the land where people can understand my accent, and I love it. And uh, it's so good to be back. I'm closer to home. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. And um, so it's good to be back this way in the Peach State. And um, so love being here with you guys. I'm excited about the things we're going to accomplish. I get to hang out with you guys at least three hours, I think, uh, today. And so uh, looking forward to some of the topics that we're going to discuss. We're going to tackle first the church as a culture of care. What I want to do in that one is uh, build a paradigm. It's something that that you guys, especially at Faith, you you uh, you have a grasp on. You have an understanding. I want to give some some foundational reasons why, so that you understand why it is that we think about uh, the church as a culture of care being necessary when we think about biblical counseling. Uh, and then we're going to tackle biblical counseling and suicide. I think that's in here, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then the final one I want to do, which is coupled with this lecture, so I want you to in your mind to just start putting these two together is uh, one on religious liberty and biblical counseling. And uh, so we want to put that together as we describe our role as the church and what we're responsible for doing, uh, but then also as we think about what we're facing in the, in the reality of the culture in which we live. We're facing some potentially very difficult days. And, and I want this to be as beneficial to you as possible, and so I'm not offended if you have a question. We can pause and interact. I'm used to teaching uh, on this level at seminary, and so if somebody has a question, it's totally fine. Um, and, and I want this to be helpful to you, to meet you where you are. And so uh, let's pray that we would be able to uh, bring the Scripture to life and help us to understand, and that God would give us wisdom in the process. So what I want to do in the first session as we work through this is to build this idea, what I call a paradigm of culture of care. Now, what I'm about to say might be shocking, Okay, but you're track three, you can handle it, it's okay, is um, biblical counseling, for biblical counseling's sake, is a non-entity. Okay? What I mean by that is if all we're trying to do in biblical counseling is to replace what the secularist offers in professionalism, then what we're accomplishing is not biblical. Right? It's not healthy when we think about it in relation to the church. And so what we have to think about is how does this fit proper in the way we think about church? The, the, the doctrinal term would be ecclesiology. The way we think about this in relation to the ministry and mission that God has given to the church. How do we think about it in that way? Because what this, what this is going to do, hopefully, is it's going to distinguish, yes, there are times at which we do specific counseling ministry But this DNA that we talk about in discipleship and the way this should happen and the way that we care for other people is something that should be done that flows throughout everything that we do in the church. And that's going to be the goal. But we have to distinguish that uh, in relation to the other entities that God has given. The first thing we have to do is establish what I call jurisdictional doctrine. What I mean by that, and I'm, I'm borrowing this from Augustine, had this idea when he talks about the city of God where he distinguishes the city of God versus the city of man, and he talks about the two kingdoms and how the two kingdoms operate. Calvin borrows from this. He calls it jurisdictional doctrine or uh, sphere sovereignty, where he's talking about the responsibility of the church versus the responsibility of the government. Uh, Another Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, does the same thing. So what I'm trying to do is borrow from them so that we have clear understanding of what our responsibility is and how naturally it flows out from the Scripture that we would do this ministry of care. Uh, particularly uh, as it flows out in the counseling. 
So if we were to think about three institutions that God created, God created at least three institutions that we see in the Bible. The first institution he created is uh, the family, which I'm going in backwards order, but you can take notes because you're good at that, uh, is the family. If you think about the family, I want you to think about the institution in terms of two things. The first thing I want you to think about is in terms of its role, and the second thing is in terms of its responsibility. So if we take a step back for a second, God has given a proper authority for everything in the created world. We step back from that and we see he is the authority. He is the sovereign. So he has authority over all things. Everything that he grants and delegates authority will give an account to him, right? And so he's done this by establishing the family. Family is intended, and it's not changed from Old to New Testament. It's intended to be the intense discipleship-making center that God has created. The church comes alongside in New Testament times to accomplish the same goal, even the same language is used. We talk about metaphorically the family, the family of God. Those things are, are used to try and give us an understanding of what God was intending for this new institution in the New Testament. But family is established. If we were to talk in terms of what are the roles and responsibilities of the family, what would they be? What are some of the roles and the responsibilities of the family? What's the role of family? In marriage, what's the role of marriage? Primarily to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. It's one of the first commands. Okay. Why? What, what did God seek? To fill the earth with what? Worshippers. To, to fill the earth with his glory. That duty never changes when you get post-fall, right? You get to Habakkuk 2.14, and God, God declares through Habakkuk that he desires that his glory spread across the earth like the waters cover the sea, right? What he wants is image bearers spread across everywhere, all over the world, bearing his name and bearing his glory, reflecting his image, if you will, right? So that's the picture that we see. That's a part of the family's responsibility. What about marriage in its relationship? Intimacy. Intimacy is intended to display something. What's it intended to display? Relationship. Which relationship primarily is it intended to, to display? See, often we, we think about this in our minds in a chronological format as if God created marriage first and he thought about Jesus second. In reality, when you think about the gospel, the gospel is first and primary. Now marriage becomes this display of something in relationship. And that relationship, which Paul proclaims very clearly and profusely in the New Testament, is this expression of this gospel-centric relationship between husband and wife, husband and bride, right? And that's the, the language that you see even from the Old Testament. So you see a responsibility and roles, particular roles, and they're intended to display something that's great. So anything you do within marriage, you have to be careful. Why? Because the story that you're proclaiming has implication for the gospel. So if we say that just in our modern culture, that the roles that the scripture gives based on marital relationship can be changed, then we think that the roles of Jesus and the church can be changed. Do you see the implication that happens? Now what that does in marital life is it brings things to reality that I'm proclaiming something that's not just temporal but eternal. Right? That's an important factor. But with that headship, with that authority that's given to parents, to, to the father, and then to parents over children... It's a delegated authority. So it's not an authority unto itself. Remember, there's a responsibility. And what's the responsibility? Back to God who is the sovereign. So we have that category. That's a sphere, if you will. That's a place at which uh, God has delegated and said, you're a steward of this area. So fathers, do you feel the weight of that? 
Right? Grandfathers, do you feel the weight of that? That's a, that's a huge weight when you think about it, scripturally speaking, what God demands of you in that area. Now, I, want, I don't want to spend a lot of time there because that's not our goal. It's only helpful to establish uh, this idea of what the church is intended to be because all that language, is, it doesn't replace the family, but it's built upon the idea, metaphorically, of the family when we get to the New Testament, the language that Paul primarily uses to describe this body, this fellowship, this family of God is what he uses. Now, if you think about the second institution, it's the government. Now, there were people in history, particularly Christians, who would say that the government was a necessary evil. And can I just say, at times in history, maybe even recent history, it does seem as though the government can be a necessary evil. That's not the perspective of the Bible. The Bible actually describes that God is the one who raises leaders up and he tears them down. God is the one who establishes uh, their rule and their authority. God even demands and commands of all of us that we respond appropriately to ruling authorities. Now, I confess that there are times, certainly in history when I look back at persecution of Christians and even in modern times, with uh, the morality and the ethics that we see consistently in some of those arenas and the abuse of power and so on, that's a difficult thing to do. But God demands, Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter, he demands that that's our response. Now, what's critical, and this is what we're going to pick up on later, is we're going to, this is kind of the introduction that's going to dive us into two worlds to think about the church and the government appropriately when we think about counseling. But the, the government has a role and responsibility. What's the government's role and responsibility? To punish evildoers. And as we would pray in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that, that uh, they would keep the peace is the idea. And so their duty, their primary role is to make sure that peace is kept, <clears throat> is kept so that we could do what? Live quiet and peaceful lives in a way that's free to worship and honor God. Okay? <clears throat> so that's the picture. Now, they have a task. And it's actually ordained by God for them to do. And every single governing authority will answer to God as the supreme being for this role and responsibility. And they have been given what the scriptures even call a sword, a physical sword, right? And what's the purpose of the physical sword? To punish those who do wicked, those who do evil. So someone who is a just ruling authority... Uh, who, are, who will answer appropriately to God, is a governing authority who will look at the scriptures as the law of God, as you see Solomon described, David described in his precepts and statutes, and they govern based on that morality. An unjust governing authority who will answer to God at some point uh, is those who would see a different morality and a different ethic. That's critical because their primary task is to swing the physical sword, and they're going to judge and make justice based on how they view Morality and reality, okay? Now, this is important because as we think about the government, in all of its duties, one of the things that we see in our modern culture, which we're going to really dive into in the, in the last hour today, is they're diving into this area, this arena, this sphere, if you will, of soul care. Now, that's a problem in so many ways because when you think about their primary duty to swing a sword, it's not this sword, Right? Their primary duty is to swing the physical sword. So we have to acknowledge that, yes, they have a role. Yes, they have a duty. And it's been delegated and granted by God for them to do this. The problem is that we're allowing them to breach into an arena that God has not granted to them. You see? And so we have to respond appropriately to them as the proper authority in certain areas. That is true. Which has overlap with the way we think about life in the church even some of the counseling issues that we would, we would deal with, abuse and sexuality and so on. That's certainly true. 
But it has implication, which we're going to dive into later. The last one that we're going to talk about in this hour is the church. So when we think about the church as an institution, God has created the church with primary roles and responsibilities. And we see this throughout the, throughout the Bible, really. Uh, metaphorically speaking, in the Old Testament, we see pictures of uh, the people of God and so on. And then we see that come to fruition with the advent of the church, the inauguration of the church in the book of Acts, when the giving of the Holy Spirit comes and we see the church uh, birth. And so we see this definition. Now, as we start to see the definition, we have to think about this in a couple of ways. We have to think about this in essence and then in function. So much of what's happening today, and I, I hope I don't offend you, but if I do, I'll, I'll answer your questions. How about that? Um, is we think about function in church primarily and first before we think about essence. That's a problem. The reason it's a problem is because when we think about function more than we think about the essence of who we are in our being, what we have a tendency to do is be pragmatic in what we say is appropriate and okay. And see, when we do that, what we're doing is now appealing not based on the beings that we are and the group that we are, God says we are together collectively as the church, right? United under his spirit, having primary goals and so on. We begin to look at how do we grow? Who can we reach? What can we accomplish? And with that mentality, we start to give permission to functions that God doesn't give permission uh, to us to, 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 to do. And so this is a critical error, I think, that's happening magnanimously all around us in the way that we think about church, in the way that we function. Why? Because what does it lead to? Colossians chapter 2 warns us not to fall into empty deception, empty philosophies, and vain deceit. And one of the ways that we're doing that, he warns in 2.23 at the very end, is we're actually appealing to fleshly aspects of human beings to build the church. right? And our functions are not tied to our essence by what God says our roles and our responsibilities are. And so we have to come back to that idea. Who are we? Who are we as a group of people? What has God mandated for us to be and then flowing out of that to do? You notice as individuals, that's the way in which the Bible commands us, is you are this, the indicatives, so do this, the imperatives. It's the same when we think about the institution of the church. So we have to settle in our minds, God as the sovereign has delegated to us certain roles and responsibilities, indications of who we are as a group of people, as a body of people, and then from that flowing, this is what we do. Now, how does that fit into counseling? You're like, oh my gosh, what does that even mean? We're going to flow that into an understanding of everything that, that the church is intended to do is soul care. Every single thing the church is intended to do is intended for the purpose of caring for souls. Everything. <clears throat> now, if you think about this, let's begin with that question. Who is the church? Now, we're going to do this quickly. Just kind of an overview. You're going to see some passages. Do you have notes? No? You do. Okay, good. So you have those in front of you, so I don't have to belabor those. These are just points of interest so that we can get to some of the meat, so we can see functionally how this works. Okay? So the essence, who is the church? We are called the people of God. We are a set-apart people, a, a, a royal priesthood, as Peter describes in that passage. <clears throat> There's, there are a couple of metaphors that describe who we are. Uh, the body of Christ, right? What does that mean functionally? What it means, well, let's start in essence. What it means in essence is, as Jesus ascended, now who becomes the true hands and feet of Christ? The church. So we as a collective body, 
And Paul uses this metaphor consistently. And we have different aspects and roles and functions, but it's all based, those functions are based on how we fit together in our essence, some being the head, some being the neck, some being the the arms and the feet and so on, right? That's a, a consistent metaphor that we see. So we're the body of Christ collectively doing the work of Christ, which means we're proclaiming the glory of Christ, not just by word, but also by deed, right? Because Christ coupled those two things together. He came to speak the truth of God, but to be the truth of God. And in uh, Colossians chapter 1, that's exactly what Paul says. He is the image of the invisible God. Want to know what God looks like? This is what he looks like. Jesus describes this part of this essence in the church by saying that if people out there want to know what my disciples look like, it's the people who love one another. Why? Because that's the way Jesus... Uh, did everything, was motivated by love for the Father, and then in compassion and love for people. It's the same, same idea for us. We are also called the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the place where the Spirit resides. We are the place where God resides, if you think about it in those terms. Uh, And this is from the the temple of the Spirit, from us as the people of God, especially in gathering, uh, we have the role and responsibility of proclaiming the truth that's revealed to us. Right, And this is in forms of worship, in forms of proclamation, and so on. Uh, you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians 3. That FF means following. So that's what I mean by that, just the, the passages that are there. We are a priesthood. We are a set-apart people. This is the way the, the church describes it. What does that mean? <laughs> this is always confusing to me uh, when, I think, when I talk in terms of uh, biblical counseling. And how shocking it is for some Christians to think that biblical counselors don't speak in a way that satisfies the secular culture. That's shocking to me. Uh, Why is that? Well, because the Bible makes clear by this doctrine of the priesthood of believers that we think according to a different paradigm. Right? We we operate under the rules and laws and uh, commands of a different kingdom and a different king. We're citizens not of this earth. We're citizens... Uh, from above. This is the language that Paul uses in Colossians 3 where he, he, he implores us not to think on things on the earth. Why? Because then you'll think according to the kingdom of the earth. But to think on things that are above. As, as set apart people, we have a different paradigm of the way that we think. And what, I've, what I'm afraid of in biblical counseling in particular and lots of other areas of the church as well is that what, what we're doing is often trying to appeal and make our message palatable to the world. Right. I mean, how far, how much against what Christ commands do you have to go to, to try and make it palatable to the world? Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. Right. They're not going to accept the message that we have. And so we shouldn't think it strange that the way in which we think about things is just drastically different. It's according to a different paradigm. First of all, we do believe in supernaturalism. Right. We, we believe there is something above the natural realm. That's completely countercultural to the world in which we live that lives according to an evolutionary, biological, naturalistic system, a closed system. So that within itself is a distinction. But we are a priesthood. We are a set-apart group of people that are for the purpose of God. And then finally, we have an inheritance, which basically what I mean by that is <clears throat> we're living for something. Uh, we're living for the promises. And that in the scripture is the primary motivation for all of us to be and to do. Right? So those are statements about the essence of who we are as a collected body together. And now we think about function. So based on those declarations, and there are others, 
uh, that we didn't cover, <clears throat> but based on those basic declarations of who we are and what we've been entrusted with, which is the Word of God. Do you think about the Word of God? Sorry, I get on a rabbit trail here. So do you think about the Word of God as God? Now, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, biblical idolatry. I'm not thinking about the, the Scriptures as bring, being higher than God. But when we think about the Scriptures, the Scriptures reveal God, Right? And so the graciousness of God in giving us his word is for us to see and know him. Do you see? Does that make sense to you? And so us living the word, what are we doing? We're actually revealing God. There are certain things that are demanded of us. Um, holiness in churches is, is, a, um, is not a popular thing, right? Oh, you're legalistic. No, actually, you're biblical uh, when you're pursuing holiness. And that's a part of soul care. I'm going to make that argument when we think about function. So now what does the church do? I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is critical. And we could argue this from a thousand places. We could argue this here in Acts chapter 2. We could do this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and following. We could do the same thing there. Uh, I'll I'll probably refer to um, a couple along the way. So what does the church do? We see it definitely at the inauguration of the church. Excuse me, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. 42 and 47, and what you're going to see with Paul in 2 Timothy is that goal doesn't change, right? You see the same ideas um, as far as what the church is to do. Why? Because the essence of the church doesn't change. And so if the essence of the church doesn't change, the function that flows out of the essence doesn't change either. Now, that should be instructive for our time. Now, it doesn't mean that we sing Gregorian chants, okay? But what it does mean is we have the same um, way that we express the beings that we are set apart from God. Okay, that's another rabbit trail. So 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Do you see all the elements there? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the first one. Teaching. What, what do we mean here when we say teaching? So this is a part of what the church is to do. Now what I want to argue here is that this is all soul care, every bit of it. Okay, If we were to look go ahead and cheat, and we look at the very end. It says, Praising God and having favor with all people. This is verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Let's start with evangelism. Okay, Maybe I should swap that, and number five should be number one. Uh, but I tried to go in order, but it doesn't work well when I'm teaching through it. So we're going to swap it. So evangelism. Think about evangelism, because that's what we think about primary and, uh, primarily in chronological order. Somebody comes to faith in Christ. What, what are we doing? When you share the gospel with somebody, what is it that you're accomplishing? Right? How, does the, how does the Bible describe the hearts and minds and eyes of people who are lost? Give me some of the language. How? Darken. What else? Blind. Can they see with their physical eyes? Of course. They can see. Jesus says it like this to the Pharisees. You can see but not see. And hear but not hear. Right? So they have perception but they're not seeing rightly. Why? Because they don't see according to the kingdom. They don't see with eyes of the spirit, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that it's necessary that their hearts and minds become unveiled by the spirit so now they can see and understand. Understand Moses, the teaching of the scriptures. Understand Christ, right, from the scriptures. <clears throat> so when we think about evangelism, what's happening? Someone comes to faith. They hear the gospel. God awakens them. And now they see, right? What's happening to their soul? Jesus, always think about counseling and your goals in counseling from this statement of Jesus, this question, this inquiry of Jesus. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own 
soul. If what you're trying to accomplish in counseling is not preparing that man or woman to stand before God, it's probably not biblical, right? So when you think about evangelism, is it soul care? Absolutely it's soul care. Why? Because what you're doing is aiming at that which Jesus himself says is the most profitable thing. Can we do good for lost people? Yes. But what does it actually profit them? Very little. Until what? Until they see with eyes that are informed by the Spirit of God. Until they, their eyes are not blinded anymore. Their hearts are not darkened. Their hearts are not hardened. Their heart is now soft, Ezekiel 36. So that's the picture that we see is, is evangelism is a part of that. So what is the church supposed to do? Right? You come to hear the teaching of the word, the preaching of the word, and you go out and you share the gospel. What is that? Soul care. I had an evangelism professor ask me one time, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share the gospel with them? Right? What does he mean? How much, uh, how much do you have to hate a person's soul and not think about their eternal destiny to not share the good news of Jesus with them? What is he saying? You actually don't care for their soul. Evangelism in that sense is absolutely mandated by God, so it's obedience to him. Don't separate the two. But it is caring for the souls of people. So in every mission that the church is given, it is for the purpose of soul care. Now a person comes to faith, they come to church. Right? And what do we see? The church, the people who in essence were set apart by God, now called the people of God, the body of Christ, the family of God, and so on, priesthood of believers, and they submit themselves to the teaching of the apostles. What is that? That's the proclamation. The proclamation of the scriptures, right? And how arrogant is it for you and I to think that we don't need to sit under the teaching of the word of God every week, right? Uh, I need it. I need to hear the word of God taught. Why? Because it recalibrates me. It helps me to understand life from the truth of God's perspective. And what is that doing? Caring for my soul. So every week when you think about Ephesians 4, uh, what, what the pastor's elder's job is they teach to you. They teach to you the word of God. And what are they doing? They're They're shepherding. They're caring for your soul. Now, that shepherding happens, yes, from the pulpit, but it happens throughout the week, too. There's no question about that. But that is one form of shepherding where they're teaching for what purpose? Ephesians 4 says to equip you to do the work of the what? Ministry. What prepares you best to do the work of the ministry? That you grow in faith and maturity. And what is that? That is soul care in and of itself. Because if you're not growing in faith and maturity in relation to Christ, which is sanctification... If that's not happening, what does the Bible call you? Foolish, immature, weak. Those are all uh, words and language of the Scripture that describes those who are immature and those who are uh, weak in the faith and those who will do foolish things because they don't understand who they are. So to submit yourself to preaching, to hear the Word of God on a consistent basis, the teaching that happens that comes from the Word of God, that in in and of itself is soul care. You notice how do people drift away from the things of God? They often drift away from the teaching of God. So it's important that you're part of a faithful fellowship who preaches and teaches the word of God because that's the way in which the fellowship actually is cared for, prepared for the task that they need to do. We have to flip this. I know I'm speaking to the choir right here, but we've got to flip this in America, right? We have a bit, and we're, we're, we're exporting this junk to the rest of the world where we think about uh, the ways that we think about preaching, that, that the pastor is actually the minister, right? He's not the minister. We've all been given the ministry of what? Reconciliation. The reason you come to church is to be equipped so that you can become the what? 
minister. That's Ephesians 4, right? So we learn the word for what purpose? Because your, your soul needs to be built up and cared for so that when you go out into the world and you go to battle as you're ministering and caring and being compassionate toward other people and speaking the word to them, that you can care well for them, right? Because as you grow in Christ, you're seeing with compassionate eyes that reflect the way Christ would see them as well. Are you following that? So every aspect of the church in function and what we do flows from the essence of who we are, and all of it is driven by soul care. All of it. Fellowship, same thing. Now here, I'm going to pass this off, and we're going to talk about this kind of toward the end when you think about the one another's. Right? There are at least 59 one another's in the New Testament. If you find another one, let me know. I can write a book. We'll be famous. Um, but there are at least 59 one another's where in the scriptures we see this fellowshipping happen. And the ministry is happening with and for one another. And what's the purpose of that? Right? Sometimes it's to admonish. Hebrews 3 warns us that we want to admonish each other. For what purpose? Because of the deceitfulness of sin today. To care for each other. Right? When I'm weary and well-doing, what, do you, what should you do based on 1 Thessalonians 5.14? It's to encourage me. What is that? That's soul care. What about bearing my burden? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Right? What is that to me? If you're bearing my burden with me, that's soul care. You see? That, I mean, everything that we do with and for one another is for that purpose. When you're encouraging, you're admonishing, you're speaking truth to me, and you're praying for me, you're interceding for me. Uh, that fellowship, that care for one another... If I have lack, you caring for me. That, that's all soul care. That's all in the name of Christ for a certain purpose that I would grow in Christ. That I wouldn't be deceived by what's happening and unfolding in the world around me. Okay? That I would actually be tethered to the truth of the scripture. And that Christ reminds me that Christ walks with me through the suffering of the world. He doesn't promise that suffering will go away. He promises he will be with us. And that there's a better day coming where we're motivated by the promise. I call it eschatological hope. Where we're constantly with other people who are thinking about a kingdom that's to come, Hebrews 13, 14. The same way Abraham was longing for a city, the city that was to come, where there would be no more curse of sin and the effects of it. Right? And that is caring for the soul. So fellowship. Worship. Right? You think about the way in which music, and, and I don't mean to, to um, reduce worship to music. That's an, an element of worship. You hearing the word is worship. Us getting together to praise and glorify and honor the name of the Lord is worship. But that aspect, there are elements to it at which when we sing, it's ministry to our soul. Right? Part of you singing, and, and it's important, we've lost this in America too, where we're not singing good theology. But you singing good theology, what is it that you remember most? You'll remember a couple of points from Pastor Shane when he preaches. But you'll sing those songs over and over and over again, making sure that those songs are Good theology is helpful. Why? Because you see in the scriptures, music is a ministry to the soul. The psalmist makes that clear. You look at Saul, even when the Bible says his soul was vexed into deep despair. And the playing of the harp was a ministry to him. So worship together with God's people to recalibrate us, to remind us, is a caring for the soul. The way in which we're taught to pray, to exalt and worship God, right? Uh, Our Father, hallowed be your Right? Hallowed be your name. It's, a wor- it's an act of worship where you're exalting him. It recalibrates the being that you are. So worship in every aspect, whether we're talking about in a, on an individual basis or uh, collectively. In Acts 2, he's talking collectively here. Worship, that aspect of what the church functions and does. This is the, the um, reminder from the word that we 
not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because sin is deceitful. All right? and, and it's easy for us as human beings to fall into a snare. So part of your uh, walking in humility is your faithful attendance to be among brothers and sisters in Christ, to hear the teaching of the word, to be a legitimate part of the fellowship where you're engaged more than just coming on Sunday and you slip out the door, but being engaged in the lives of people. That's New Testament fellowship. That's what we're to function to be and do. Why? Because it's that important for us to care for each other's souls, right? Worship. And then service. And we see all of these elements here in Acts 2, 42 through 47 to where now... um, just just one story about Jesus where in John he captures this idea of Jesus coming to the earth and dwelling in flesh among us. And this is an act of service of Christ. Philippians 2 gives a, a kind of a commentary on what's happening there where um, Jesus is coming. He's emptying himself. We're to have this same mind that was in Christ Jesus. He's emptying himself. For what purpose? To come to seeking to save those who are lost, to serve the Father, the, the, uh, the decrees of the Father. The expressions of the Father, the love of the Father. And who's he serving? He's serving us, serving the Father in doing that. that. We're commanded to follow that example in the way in which we serve other people. Sometimes the best thing I can do, whether I'm counseling somebody or working with somebody in a process of discipleship, broad discipleship, is uh, let's think about somebody other than you this week. right? And how do we do that? Well, let's think about some people we can serve. right? Because what happens often, you, you notice the more that you think about you, the more desperate you get, the more your soul is vexed, right? Because when we're honest with ourselves about who we are, and then we start being confined to thinking that we're the only hope that we have, uh, that's a scary world. It's not a true world, but it's a scary world. So to help people, and ourselves included, to think about other people, to having the mind of Christ, to where we're putting other people ahead of ourselves. Uh, we're seeing their needs is more important than our own. We're going out and serving. This is a part of a discipline. This is worship to God, but it's also care for what? Your soul in the way in which we serve other people. I, I love the beauty of God. Some, sometimes the things that God commands and demands of us, we think are insanity. And to the natural eye, they really are, right? Think about marriage in that way. Um, I would say service would be one of those things. Marriage is an insane enterprise, Right? It really is. You take two sinful people and put them in close, close proximity to each other after Genesis 3. That's a disaster. Right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's insanity. But what is God doing? What, what God is doing is accomplishing God-like things. Right? Because God's goal is that you see you. And in the process of you seeing you, you seeing your need for him. And now what we begin to see is God is actually using that relationship to refine you into his image, so that way you learn to serve and pour yourself out for the sake of another. God's brilliant. (laughs) And that's exactly what he does when he calls us to service as people. He's killing you while he's proclaiming him. Do you see? What a beautiful thing. And is that not soul care for you? Because God is willing to do anything he can, by design, to strip anything from you that's killing you. That's a beautiful, loving, kind, caring God. Now, the process is difficult. But that's the way he cares. That's soul care to you. So we think about the essence of the church, the function, the way it all lays out. This is what God has called us to do. Now, what does this look like? Okay, we've got to run. I always do this. I have more notes than we can get through. So what are the goals? The goals in how we function, in the way we think about soul care, 
We see in Matthew 28, you guys can probably all proclaim that verse. This is what we would call the Great Commission, where all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and earth. And what does he tell them to do? Go and make disciples of all nations. We we like that part because it's kind of fun to go to Turkey, right? It's kind of fun to go to Brazil. It's fun to do those things. What we forget is what are we supposed to be doing when we're there? Teaching them to observe. That's an important word. Because... Right now, I mentioned this earlier, in the language of a lot of churches, if you try and do what Christ commands, you're some crazy person, right? You're a super Christian. You're an ultra Christian. That's normal Christianity, right? You're supposed to teach them to observe, to obey all that Christ commands. Why? Because in John fourteen fifteen, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So true, true discipleship, I would argue true soul care is taking time to develop a relationship with people to where what you're doing on a daily basis is you're teaching a person through their daily life and their experiences to interpret their whole world and their whole life through the lens of God so that way they obey what God commands in their context. And what are you doing? You're caring for their soul. You're helping them prepare for whatever disaster might happen. You're preparing their heart and mind to stand before God. Right? You're preparing them to die and to die well. That's soul care. Make disciples. That's what we're called to do. This is the mission of the church. This happens certainly in the family, but the church will be responsible for that. You say, well, what do you mean? Look at Hebrews 13, 17. If any of you are pastors in here, it makes very clear that your people, yes, are supposed to submit and to obey the things that you call them to as unto the Lord. But you will give an account for the way in which you care for their souls. So you think about the mission of the church is to care for the souls of people. That's a scary thought if you're, if you're an elder, if you're a teacher, if you're a pastor. Um, you should walk with fear and trembling and humility, knowing that that's your responsibility. Now think about this in the way we think about the essence of the church again. One element that's really important that we need to think through is, who's the head of the church? Yes. This is important. This is a really big deal. Because when you think about Christ as the head of the church, the way that the church should function as the body of Christ ought to mimic the head. Do you see? Now we think about everything that Jesus did. Just go and read the Gospels. We're reading as a family right now through John. We're on John 17. So we're in the middle of uh, reading about the Spirit. Jesus talking about the Spirit coming. And the beautiful picture that Jesus gives is that there's going to be another of the same kind, just like me, who will care for you. I know this world is tumultuous. He says this like over and over again in 14, 15, 16, and he's going to say it again in 17 when we get to that maybe tomorrow. So you think about the picture that Jesus is painting. He's saying, I'm going to send another one because I know I care for you so well that you need another one because the world is tumultuous. And I'm going to send, don't you worry, I'm going to send another of the same kind. Don't be troubled in your heart. I'm going to send another. This is true soul care. It's what Jesus does. You go read through the Gospels, and that's what you'll see over and over again. The ways in which Jesus cares for people, and everything he did was to glorify the Father for the sake of the souls of people. And you think about what's the mission of the church. It's to reflect the head. Think about pastors. Okay, let's think about this in order, right? Because we would argue that elders and pastors are responsible Remember the role and responsibility? They're responsible to God for that delegated authority. Yes, they have an authority. It's delegated, and they, will, they are stewards of that. But who are they, they to reflect? The language of the New Testament actually gives a picture that they are under shepherds. This is following uh, language of the Old Testament in places like Jeremiah 6 and Ezekiel chapter uh, 34, like 1 through about 17. 
And you see this picture of under-shepherds, the leaders of Israel. That's really intended to be those who would lead the church in the New Testament. Um, that At least a, a picture of that, a metaphor, a uh, portion of what he's talking about there. And what are they supposed to do? <clears throat> in the current world in which we live, pastors are thought of as being CEOs and managers, right? Uh, being the, you know, trying to implement all the greatest leadership material, as opposed to being submissive to the headship and lordship of Christ in the way in which they care for their people. Because shepherding is not just simply preaching, right? What it means to be a pastor is not a preacher. Now, that's a function of what he does, but that's not the sum total of what he does. Uh, the sum total of what he does is preaching faithfully, being a garden pillar of the truth is what the church is supposed to be and do. And he leads in that, which is the same way Christ did, but then also shepherding his people. Jesus is the good shepherd, and all good pastors and elders are following that model, exemplifying that model, following the head in the way in which they care. So how does this look? What, what's really, <clears throat> if I were to give some sort of... Um, some sort of template, what would this look like? It would really look like Colossians 1.28. It says, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man. Do you see how these functions are repeated? But Paul never repeats these functions without assuming that the essence of who we are. The essence of who we are, he articulates in Colossians 1. Remember, this is the same thing that was happening in Acts chapter 2. You are to wait here until you are empowered with the Holy Spirit, and then now functionally you go do these things. Paul is arguing really simply the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. You guys are getting out into all this ideas of wisdom and so on and so forth. You need to be grounded back to who God is. This is who Christ is. This is who he came to be. This is what he came to accomplish. This is really Colossians 1 through about 22. And then he starts talking about his ministry as an apostle to do that. And then he gets to 28. And now he's talking about the ministry of the fellowship, the church, and what they're to accomplish. And he says, it's him we proclaim, talking about Christ. So he's reasserting Christ as being the head over all. So it's him we proclaim, admonishing, you know that word, right? That's the nuthateo, root word, the laying truth upon the mind of a person, even sometimes in a confrontational way if there's rebellion and so on. So that's the picture. We're admonishing every man, teaching every man for what purpose? Now he gives the goal. And what he's saying is this is a normal human being. This is actually what God intended prior to Genesis chapter 3, is that we would walk in harmony with God, and in walking in harmony and fellowship with God, that we would reflect his nature and his character. And now the beauty of the redemption of Christ is not just to save you from hell, which it certainly does, but it's also to restore you to the being that God intended you to be, which is to restore the image of God in you. So all church function is really to accomplish that among God's people, to make us complete in Christ. Not to make us perfect. I'm not arguing Wesley perfectionism. I think that's... a a faulty narrative, especially based on Romans 6 and 7, but we shan't, we shan't go there now. Um, so what, what he's arguing is this is what's normal. So in a paradigm of the way the church thinks about people, what we're always aiming at is to help restore them to what God deems is normal. And what's normal? To reflect the image and the character and the nature of the God who created them. Now do you see the beauty of this? And now what it does is it makes the church make sense. Why do I go and sit for an hour or two hours every week? Man, the beauty of what God is doing in and among us, caring for us, loving us, speaking truth to us, empowering us now to go and do that ministry for other people. 
This is the goal. This is the paradigm, right? Colossians 1. And then he goes on to say, essentially in 2.1, that in Christ, 2.1, 2 and 3, he says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And what does he mean? The way that we think as a collective body, which he's talked about in 1.28 and 29, it's fleshed out by seeking the one who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And us pursuing him is actually a guard to our heart and mind, Why? Because he says this is the thing that's going to protect you. You get to verse 6, 7, and 8 from empty philosophy and vain deception, which is actually a detriment to your what? Soul. That's right. So you see the picture, right? He's guarding us from the thing that's killing us, which is our flesh. And so what should be the aim of us? This is proper soul care. This is the function of the church. This is why biblical counseling to function outside of the local church really is uh, one-legged, if you will. It hobbles along. Why? Because it's, it's seeing itself as a, an equal equivalent based on a wrong foundation, right? It's trying to replace secular professionalism, and we just do it Christianly like this. When in reality, true counseling is intensive discipleship that is really null and void unless that person is assimilated into the greater care of the body so that those issues, once they're overcome, the specific dynamical issues that are going on, now they're assimilated into the body so that what happens, they can be built up and encouraged so that they don't cycle back over and over and over again back into the same pits. So it has to function seamlessly like that because soul care is going on 24-7 in the, the function of the church. So the goal, we know, that is to conform people to the image of Christ. That ought to be the aim of what we think about, not just in the church, but when we're meeting with people in a counseling perspective. Right? Romans 8.29. We, we like to talk about 8.28. Do you know that verse? Romans 8, I'm talking fast. I'm sorry. We're trying to get through this. Romans 8.28. Do you know that verse? All things work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, we often like to pause there because most of you probably don't know 29. Oh, that was a good test. Um, that will be on the test at the end. So <clears throat> when you think about good, we often define good as the way we define good culturally, right? So we put God to some sort of test thinking, well, God, if you don't save the life of this person or this person's in the hospital, if you don't raise them from their sick bed, then X, Y, and Z. Or God is blessing when he's doing this, which I define as good, which is to help my bank account or whatever the case might be. And that's how we define good. The problem is, um, that's a faulty narrative. Actually, God defines what is good in the next verse. He says, this is where you are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So how do we define good according to the kingdom of God? It's not that we get materialism in the world, which is so prevalent in the day in which we live. What, what it means is that we are conformed to the image of Christ. So what's God willing to do? Work all things together for your good. Well, let's insert the explanation and commentary of 29, which is God is willing to work all things together for your conformity to Christ, because that's the most caring and loving thing he can do to protect you and to love you. Do you see that? Man, what a beautiful picture. And he does it with gentleness and kindness. And so the question is, if that's the goal of God, and he's given the institution of the church to accomplish his goal and to proclaim his word, what in the world are we doing thinking that we're going to come up with different ways to accomplish this same thing? Let's just follow the pattern that God has set. And this happens on multiple levels. It happens corporately, right? It happens collectively if you get in some sort of small group or Sunday school or whatever the case may be, where you're learning together and growing together as a fellowship, and then in counseling when it happens in an intensive way, right? What we have to understand is the reason discipleship is necessary is because we're all broken. We're all not conformed to Christ, 
And so discipleship happens in every function of what we do in the church. Counseling arises when there's a particular issue that comes to the, to the focal point where it's almost like we can't get over that particular issue. And now intensive discipleship is necessary. And that's where counseling comes into play, where we're going to care for somebody's soul in this way to get them back into the mainstream and flow of Christian discipleship. Teach biblical truths. That's the next one. We apply scripture to life. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 2.2 where Paul says he makes it his aim and goal that in everything he proclaims Christ. That ought to be instructive for us. Not just for the way we think about the church and the way we function in the church, but also in the way you counsel. Uh, that it ought to be aimed at Christ. I cannot fathom in my mind how this happens, but how some Christians think it's appropriate to counsel and Jesus is optional. I think from the scripture flowing out of what God demands from the church and his primary goal for people, that's unfathomable to me. Uh, how you can argue that from scripture. I think that's uh, a misnomer, absolutely, from the scripture. Colossians 3.16, we're letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. It's what we're doing. We're applying the truths of life. Uh, Spurgeon said it like this. <clears throat> what we're to do as we grow in God is uh, take a little bit of scripture and apply it to a little bit of life. He said that was the aim of his sermons. If you've ever read his sermons, he applied a lot of truth to a lot of life. Okay? Uh, he was really good at it. But our purpose is to take the scriptures and make it applicable to people. Letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we apply these truths. Um, we learn to solve problems biblically. That's the goal. I've listed some passages so you can see how that operates. Where We're taking a problem and we're solving it biblically. Now we have to be careful not to be problem focused. That's always a danger. Because when you're problem focused, you become pragmatic. Right? So if you define the problem as depression, what do you think is the goal? Not to be depressed. And so what are you okay with as a remedy? Anything that doesn't make them depressed. And so you measure your goal as if I've achieved that when they are happy. The problem is emotions are fickle. Today they're happy, tomorrow they are not because they remember that they're going to die and they get sad again. So, I mean, I don't mean to be facetious about that. I'm just saying that's the fickle nature that, that's going on. And we're aiming often at the wrong things. What we have to remember is back to what God says is what I call a theological ideal. What is normal? Whatever is normal, that's what we're trying to conform them to because somewhere they become broken. So all we're trying to do essentially is listen for unbiblical thinking, correct it with biblical truth. And what you're doing in the process of solving a problem biblically is you're trying to understand in the context of that person's life, where did they start thinking something that was unbiblical, living something that was unbiblical, or in relation to a faulty understanding of who God is that's now led them down this path of where they're confused and their hearts darkened, they're not seeing, so on. Uh, we're to be shepherded. This is a part of our humility. What prepares you to be a counselor is that you are counseled. You're counseled by the word consistently. Uh, and then the one and others. We could work through this as a part of our fellowship, but this is not a suggestion, right? I mean, this is a mandate of normal functioning for all of us. And how does this happen? This happens as you grow in Christ. What you begin to do is you begin to see like Christ. Can I remind you how Christ saw people? Uh, one of the most vivid pictures is when Jesus went up on the mountain, he looked across the valley and he saw this herd of people. And what does the scripture describe? As he saw these people, he was moved with compassion. Why? Because they were like people, like sheep without a what? A shepherd. They were lost in the world. They didn't have a way to navigate. And so 
part of the one another helps us to walk collectively together as sheep under the shepherd who is Christ. It's a function of the church. This is how we, how we do these things. I, I just want to read maybe one or two of these. Um, James chapter 5, if you will, really quick. And then I'm gonna, uh, we're going to finish this out. James chapter 5. Because <clears throat> I want you to see some of these. We don't have time to go through all of these. But James 5, 16 to 20 says this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah, a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So that was the application. In 16, he's giving the command, who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. And what he's saying is this is a reflection of Christ. All the one another's are... Uh, uh, examples of how we flesh out what it means to look and be like Christ uh, interpreted. That's how we care for each other's soul. And our submission into that greater fellowship is also a, a demonstration of our wanting to pursue Christ ourself. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. <clears throat> Verses 12 through 15. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Why does he tell us to do that? What are all those qualities? What are all those characteristics? Put on then, as God's chosen ones. You see how he connected the essence of who you are? You see that? Into the function of who you are to be? Now, you notice you can't put on those things by yourself. Right? Uh, what, what he describes in the scripture in Galatians 5, um, 16 and following, where he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he goes on to explain what the evil deeds of the flesh are, and then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When you walk according to the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all those things. I would argue that some of these I, I, pieces of our identity, what we're supposed to be, are productions of the Spirit. So he's giving this flow, notice chronologically, that you have to be God's chosen one in order for God to work these things in you, right? This is a part of what Paul would argue in Philippians 3, part of our processing of sanctification, where we're at work and the Spirit is at work in us, do you see? And so, as God's chosen one, the essence, now what are we to do? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So, you also must forgive. Do you see? He, he's always ratcheting that back to the way in which we care for others is the same mimicking the way in which Christ has cared for us. You know what makes you a good carer of souls? Is allowing Christ truly to care for you. Right? Jerry Bridges says it like this, that you preach the gospel to yourself daily. And what's it, what's it a reminder of? Your sin and the deep, love and compassion, mercy and grace and kindness of God toward you. And then what happens, based on Matthew 18, which is a part of what Paul is referring to even here, as he talks about forgiving one another in the way God has forgiven you, the same idea, is what now begins to overflow from you is loving other people well. And what does that look like? Compassionate, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, so on. Right? Romans 15, he says basically the same thing. You who, are, you who are strong, bear with the failings of the weak. 
care for them, take care of them. Galatians 6, 1, bearing another's burden. If someone's caught in sin, our job is to bear with them. 1 Thessalonians 4, same. Hebrews 10, same basic idea. All of these things are building for us collectively what it means to follow Christ and to do that in community. And this is the way in which it's intended to function. And now what you see birthed out of that are people who are mature in Christ. And when an issue arises, whether it be with a person who's being rebellious, a person who's being weary and well-doing, or a person who is immature and weak in the faith, what's happening? Now we have people who are mature enough to go specifically to them, and a sliver of the ministry of the church becomes counseling. Do you see how that works? And now we're going to go engage that specific problem that has arisen in our fellowship, and we're going to address it with intensity, discipleship, the same compassionate kindness, meekness that Christ gives and offers. That's an overflow, a, a specific, original demonstration of the beauty of Christ in this particular situation. And that's how it flows out of the essence of the church. And so what is it that we're aiming at? To where really every person that has the Spirit of God, we're learning to be disciple makers. So where every person is essentially counseling another person. Why? Because uh, did you know that um, God does not receive counsel from anybody? Think about the flow of this, okay? And this is, this is a paradigm shifter for you when you think about biblical counseling. Um, what the seculars do is they gather wisdom and counsel from men, right? That in and of itself in the paradigm is quite foolish, When the Bible describes that God receives counsel from nobody, but we as people receive counsel from a certain locale, certain being, right? From God, it flows from him. And the function of the church is to not give our own opinion, it's to give the counsel of what? Of who? God, right? See, that's the picture where we're making disciples and we're growing in maturity to be able to do that and to do it well. So every member is a disciple maker. Think about this. Uh, You can think about the New Testament passage. Let me bring this in with Psalm 1. Right? Blessed is a man who who walks not according to the counsel of the... Nor stands in the way of... Nor sits in the seat of... Wait, so pause for a second. Now apply that to counseling. What in the world are we thinking? Apply that to counseling. Um, Freud. See a righteous fellow. Rogers. Adler, any of these guys, Skinner, God-hater, denied creation, believed in a closed system, evolutionary biology. No, but we we pattern ourselves after them. Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the, nor stands in the way of, nor sits in the seat of, but his delight, do you see the contrast? Now the paradigm is applied. His delight is in the law of the, and on his law he meditates day and day night. And what will happen? He will be like a tree is planted by a stream of water and in his season it will bear what? What's the fruit? What? Do you see that whole thing come together? Do you see the picture now? We're, we've gone full circle. What God is doing when we, we trust in the counsel of God's word, what he begins to do is produce in us this reflection of Christ, which is the most healthy aspect of our being. That's, the, that's how we pursue health, you see. And so doing this with others, teaching them to rely not on the counsel of men, not on the wisdom that comes from human entities and human brains and finite beings, but teaching us to walk according to the wisdom of God. Now what starts to happen is the Spirit produces in us the reflection of the character and nature of God, and we begin to see the full restoration of Christ happen. 
And so what does this mean? This is now a true fellowship that is ministering to people collectively, not just individually, but now you become a people who are known by what? Love. And by that, what will people know? You are my disciples. This, in a paradigm, is how the church is to be a culture of care. It's to be a part of the DNA of who you are. And then what flows out of it is naturally a functional counseling ministry where you're, you're seeking those who are broken. And you're ministering the word of God to those who are broken. Because you've experienced hope from the same types of brokenness. Let's pray. Paradigm is applied. His delight is in the law of the... And on his law he meditates day and night. And what will happen? He will be like a tree is planted by a stream of water and in his season it will bear what? What's the fruit? What? Do you see that whole thing come together? Do you see the picture now? We're, we've gone full circle. What God is doing when we, we trust in the counsel of God's word, what he begins to do is produce in us this reflection of Christ, which is the most healthy aspect of our being. That's, the, that's how we pursue health, you see. And so doing this with others, teaching them to rely not on the counsel of men, not on the wisdom that comes from human entities and human brains and finite beings, but teaching us to walk according to the wisdom of God. Now what starts to happen is the Spirit produces in us the reflection of the character and nature of God, and we begin to see the full restoration of Christ happen. And so what does this mean? This is now a true fellowship that is ministering to people collectively, not just individually, but now you become a people who are known by what? Love. And by that, what will people know? You are my disciples. This, in a paradigm, is how the church is to be a culture of care. It's to be a part of the DNA of who you are. And then what flows out of it is naturally a functional counseling ministry where you're, you're seeking those who are broken. And you're ministering the word of God to those who are broken because you've experienced hope from the same types of brokenness. Let's pray.